if you're at a baseball game sitting up in the last row of the bleachers drinking a beer, you're having a lovely time, right? You are, you are enjoying the sunshine. You are enjoying a tasty beer. You are out with friends. It is a nice time. If you go to the, the velodrome or the bike race, <laughs> they pass by your face. If you're in turn four, if, yeah, if you're in the they wrong pass place. by <laughs> your face within inches and you feel the wind go by and you feel the sport. Yeah. And I think that that's the difference. And so whenever I've sold sponsorship for bike racing, it's the, the, the ticket is to get people out to see it and feel it because it is, it's sound, it's color, it's movement. It's all tied together in a way that I don't think other sports are. And so that's then the magic in it, right? It's, it's, it's something that you've done. You've ridden a bike. I've never played major league baseball, but I've ridden a bike and I can appreciate the effort that mm. goes into it. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I talk with movement enthusiasts to learn who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This episode is with Joan Hanscom, racing, outreach, and intense passion. Bike racing is Joan Hanscom's life, from racing for fun to professionally organizing races, to running an entire bike racing organization, she's done it all. Joan talks about all things bike racing, from how she got started, to organizing, to the challenges facing women in the sport. She discusses her work at the Valley Preferred Cycling Center, and the importance of outreach and the larger picture. Joan shares her insights on passion, training, podcasting, and what a career in the sport means to her. Joan Hanscom is a cyclist, podcast host, and the executive director at Valley Preferred Cycling Center. Her love of the sport helped her build a unique career in race promotion and production, working with organizations such as the U.S. Grand Prix of Cyclocross, Cyclocross World Championships, and USA Cycling. Currently, Joan is the executive director of the Valley Preferred Cycling Center in Trexlertown, PA, and hosts the Talk of the T-Town podcast. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, Joan. Welcome. And it's my distinct pleasure to get a chance to talk to someone from the local, well, the velodrome with a lower V or the Valley Preferred Cycling Center. So I want to just start there by saying thanks for taking the time to come over. I know it wasn't super far, but I do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. And I think race season, we have... One more, I was just getting reamed out because I haven't been there in a while. And she's like, you have to go on Friday. <laughs> so let's let's start with a little bit of, I think, obvious, but I want to go in a weird direction with it. So some of the things I read, you were talking about your introduction to bicycling as, I'm going to say being special, if I can put some words in your mouth. And I think that that is a challenge for anybody, like whether or not they want to do, well, a lot of times we're talking about parkour and Arthur Plus Mountain going outside and running, jumping and playing. But whatever they're doing, getting started is really the hard part. And I'm wondering if you can point to anything in particular about, either about the Artemis group or about particular people or like, was it literally the first three seconds? Like what about your introduction to bicycling was so magical? Uh, well, I, I have, I've ridden a bike forever. Uh, you know, we all learn when we're little right. kids or we used to all learn when we were little kids. That's, that's not so mm. much the case anymore, but I learned to ride a bike when I was a little kid and my mother was very nervous person. She was a lovely person, but she was a very nervous person. And so she would let me literally ride around the one block in front of our house, which 
really did prepare me for criterium racing, let's be honest. <laughs> um, she, so she let me do this one block around the house forever, right? I would go out for hours and hours and hours and hours, and it would just be with this one block over and over and over again, because that's all I was allowed to do. The world's worst crit, yes. Yes, it was a one block crit, but I was four, so it was okay. You know, I had streamers going. So I always loved riding my bike, but then I went down a, a pathway of pretty seriously pursuing ballet for a long time. And then when the ballet thing was over and a bunch of other athletic pursuits were over, I sort of rediscovered the bike, and, and I was riding a lot. And then I started doing duathlons because... I would had been running marathons, and so I was like, "Oh, I like running. I like bikes. Let's do the both things together." <laughs> Just do them at the same time, back to back. But then it that turned would never out, occur to me. <laughs> it turned out that I wasn't terribly good at running. I liked it, but I wasn't terribly mm. good at it. Um, so I thought, "Well, I am good at the bike part, so I want to try racing bikes." And so I, in the fledgling days of the internet, found Artemis uh, racing online, and I thought, "Well, I'll just show up at this like open house they were having." And see what it's all about, because I'm curious about it. And what they did was really unique in my experience in that they did it in the fall. And so rather than saying, hey, here's a half hour clinic before your first race, they did it in the fall and they did it over two days and they sort of gave you the entire overview of this is what road racing is, this is what criteriums are, this is what time trials are. And they gave you this whole big packet of information while you're sitting in a lecture room. So it was in a nature center. I remember it being in a nature center. It was really cool. And then they said, okay, in the afternoon session, we're going to go out, we're going to practice some skills and we're going to bump into each other and ride on the grass and do all these wacky things mm. and that I'd never done before. Bicycle jousting, right? <laughs> but they, they broke it down in such a nice and digestible way for a person who was completely on the outside. And what that did was take away all the scary. Hmm. And so they said the next day, if you had fun today, please come back tomorrow. We're going to do a group ride. And if you like the group ride, then come back and do more group rides. And so what I have experienced in my 20 plus years of racing bikes now is that you don't normally get that thorough of an introduction anymore. So they broke it down into tiny digestible bits. First, we're going to learn some skills. Then we're going to do some group rides. Then we're going to invite you on the big local group rides. And then we're going to step. But then by then, it's spring, right? Because you've been doing all these things all along. And oh, look, there's a training crit series that's coming up. So we're going to race the training crit with you. We're going to be with you at your first bike race. So we're going to teach you how to pin on a number. We're going to teach you how to sneaky go behind a building and pee. We're going to teach you how all the things that you need to know for bike racing. And by doing it that way, when you finally rocked up to your first real race, A, you had teammates, B, you felt completely prepared, and it was this entry into the sport that you felt ready for, as opposed to being like, yeah, okay, I rode on Zwift all winter, I have no idea how to steer my bike, but I'm strong as shit, and now I'm going to rock up to this local race and have no idea what I'm doing. It was this whole progression of having you prepared. And for me, because I'm a person with OCD, real live, cl- you know, clinical OCD, that preparation and that repetitive nature of right. it, and that that being in this sort of process of becoming a bike racer made a huge difference. And so I don't think I would still be racing bikes today if I hadn't been brought into it in this very 
A, welcoming, but B, very methodical. Step mm. by step, here's the process of being a bike racer. And so for me, that was the sort of the magic of it, was that it laid a beautiful foundation for something that I now enjoy, even though I'm significantly older and slower than I was back then. <laughs> well. um, but but it, it was that foundational piece. And what was also sort of amazing about that is that uh, I'm still friends with the women who were the mentors to me back then, which is amazing, right? That that Cheryl Osborne and Evelyn Ajizi, they they're still I still consider them friends, even though I've moved all over the country. But we always seem to reconnect and come back. Friend. And so Cheryl's at the track all the time and now I lured her into being on our board of directors. I, I was gonna say and, I and so it, to that, right? it was this just this amazing connection that was forged through bike racing, but it was just this methodical way of bringing you into the sport, preparing you to succeed in the sport that I think sometimes is missing now. You know, the clubs don't exist in the same way, so you don't get that methodical preparation to be brought into the sport the same way, which to me was really valuable. Hmm. So you obviously mentioned riding around the block, literally, and I have nothing but bad horror stories from the couple of criterions that I raised <laughs> didn't go well, but that was my fault, not the crit's fault. I'm wondering what, what else did you do? So, you know, you got into ballet, but that was more like in adulthood, like, you know, as you came out of high school. No, I started when I was in four years old. Oh, cause I was going to say, what, what else did you do for movement? Like what, you know, what role did movement play as you were growing up? I, I did. My parents made me do all the things. <laughs> so I, we, there was a little tiny ski hill in our neighborhood, like right behind my grammar school. So I learned to ski when I was little. It was a two chair lift, tiny little ski right. hill, uh, figure skating, gymnastics, swimming lessons. I did all the things and I was terrible at all of them. Not a good ball sport person. I was, I was no, actually an okay skier, um, but I was definitely not good at the ball sports. Mm. But the ballet stuff I really loved. And so eventually all the other things fell away and they didn't make me do all the things anymore. They let me focus on the one thing that I really liked. Did they do that on purpose? Like did they? Oh yeah, for sure. They wanted me to be well-rounded. So, you know, there was ballet school, art classes, you know, flute lessons, the whole thing. Like they, they wanted me to be well-rounded, but then they wanted me to pick the one that spoke to me. And so they gave me that freedom to, to pick the thing that I loved the most. And that was the ballet school. Hmm. So I did that all the way through college with hopes of being a real ballet person, which did not work out for myriad reasons, <laughs> including having stubby legs. <laughs> and it's very, I wouldn't say you have stubby legs, but okay. <laughs> well, back then that, you know, that was a long time ago. And at that point, th there was a very distinct Balanchine aesthetic oh, where you had to have very long legs and a very short torso and ideally a very long neck and a small head. Uh, there was a very specific, specific aesthetic. And when you would go to auditions, they would give you a card. And it, because this is, you know, analog days, right? You would go for an audition and they would literally measure the length of your, like, tibia to the length of your femur. And then they would do the purport, like you and felt like write a, that on your car. Yeah, yeah, you were you were like graded. It was honest to God, like you were a like a pony at an mm -hmm. auction, mm -hmm. right? That you're like, oh, she has strong haunches. Like that was what it felt like when you would go to these auditions because you were just like, oh yeah, my length of femur to length of torso ratio is not good. <laughs> so, so that's that's uh yeah that was. But I think that's changed a lot in the intervening huh. years but but back then that was really the the long leg short torso tiny head 
like aesthetic. That's brutal. I had I mean, the tiny I always, head. I was good. I was good for that. <laughs> we thought it was brutal, but that's that's more brutal than I had imagined. Oh yeah. So yeah, that was that was uh, the intervening. The intervening years. What do you remember? So if you're that far into ballet, I'm guessing you really weren't bicycling even casually. Do you remember the first time that you got back on a bike? Well, my brother helped me get a bike when I was in high school. So even though I was pursuing the ballet stuff pretty rigorously my brother got me a bike it was black and I think it was Concordia Concordia it was black and gold and it was beautiful and I loved it and I took it to, I took it to college and when I was in college I definitely rode it a lot like I would I went to school in Boston and so I would go up and down the Charles River like as fast as I possibly could mm-hmm. so I definitely was back on the bike by college like pursuing going as fast as I could even though it was just for fun mm-hmm. like by myself um, yeah, so but you didn't find a you didn't find a group there. You didn't find a clique. You didn't fall in with anyone. Uh, not really. In my school at the time, didn't have a club for that had women on it. They had a they had a cycling club, but it was all boys. Mm. Um, again, kind of old. So uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, there wasn't an opportunity when I was there. But that's definitely changed now. So well, that's changed for the better. And, and from a lot of the things I was listening to when you were talking to Evelyn and. I forget the other woman's name. Cheryl. Uh, that interview where you were talking to them on the board of directors, it was clear that there has been a lot of progress, but there's still a long way to go in terms of equal representation within the sport of bicycling. And one of the things, I don't know, I read, like I do so much reading and then it's like, when did I read that? But you mentioned, one of the things I read is you mentioned that there are whole tiers missing. So you could be a beginner bicyclist and just because you're a woman, yeah, choose. Do you want to be in the novice, which could be people who are literally doing their first race ever? Or do you want to ride with the people who are, are doing this for realsies? And, you know, that's like jumping in the shark tank. And I hadn't really thought about that there might be whole, like, layers to the cake that are missing. I mean, I, it, all right, it seems to me it'd be really sucky if you were in a group. All right, you can do a race. And there's, like, two other competitors. And you're like, well, this really doesn't feel like riding in a group. You're missing certain aspects of it. But it hadn't occurred to me that it's like you actually have a, you might have a fewer, uh, a smaller array to choose from. It's, yeah, yeah, that's one of the unfortunate parts of our sport. So, and it, that, that's ebbed and flowed too, right? There have been periods of time when I think women's racing is more robust than others. And, uh, and it also depends on, I think, the personal leadership. Of, like, there's always got to be one person who's hyper-motivated to make change, right? And so when I was racing with Artemis way back 20 years ago, um, Evelyn Ajizi was very like driving. Evelyn and Cheryl both were both driving to have a Cat 4 women's series of their own. And that gave you something as a Cat 4, because back then there wasn't a Cat 5. There is now a Cat 5 for women as well. Um, but they were driving to have this this regional series just for the Cat 4 women, essentially to give them the same inv- incentives and the pathways as the men had to get into the sport. And for me, that was a big difference maker, I think, in that there was a distinct field for us to race in as beginners. That doesn't always happen anymore. So you could be, just like you said, so the categories for bike racing are essentially one through five, five being novice, right? The most entry level. They only got cat five for women in like 2016, so recently. And so that cat five status for men was like, oh, you do 10 races, you get an upgrade, you're a cat four. 
for women, that didn't exist, right? So you had a whole different standard of progressing through the categories. And so from day one, you were on different footing and you had different levels that you had to meet to achieve to move through the status. And then they gave a cat five for women, which is great because now you can do the same thing. You can race your 10 events and cat up and you have that, you have a sense of progression, but you know, this summer here, we've seen where there are cat four, five fields, right? So that's combined four or five women. And if there aren't enough, if the promoters don't deem that there are enough women, then they'll combine them with the, with the category one, two, three women. And then it's just what you say. It's like, you're racing with a person who's a professional, and you're a cat five potentially right. in your first race. This is good for nobody. It's it's not <laughs> good run for, right over you. Yeah. Well, it's not good for the cat five because they're not going to have a racing experience, right? They're brand new. Even if they're incredibly strong and they've spent their win- winter on Zwift getting strong, they don't have the skills then to race on the race with a professional. And it's bad for the professionals because then they have potentially people who are inexperienced, dangerous, dangerous, slower traffic, lapped traffic. So it's good for nobody. But it all, what it also does by combining all of the categories of women is how you progress through the sport is essentially scoring points, right? So if you have to get Mm. upgrade points to be go from a four to a three, from a three to a two, (laughs) it is really hard then to get your upgrade points from a three to a two. If you're always racing against cat ones and, you're not scored separately, you're scored all as one field, then how do you ever get the points unless you're like exceptional phenom? Whereas in the men's field, largely speaking, and there will be people who will say, no, no, that's not true because I had to race in a combined field once upon a time. But (laughs) generally speaking, the (laughs) the men's field have cat five, cat four, cat three, cat two, or a cat one, two, and then they have all the master's fields, right? So there's a 35 plus, a 45 plus, a 55 plus. They have every category on earth to race where they can race against their peers, and women don't have that. And so that's where it's harder for women to to stay in the sport. So for me, at my age, I'm still having to race against 20-something-year-old pros or aspiring pros because that's all there is for us. Mm. And But the men at my age have their own category, their own age group. And and promoters will say, well, that's because they show up in the numbers to, to justify it. And I'm like, well, somebody at some point has to invest. Yes in the time slots to grow the women's participation. And if you're not willing to invest in a, in a potentially money losing time slot for the short term, you're never long term going to have growth in that segment. Mm. And so that's where it's a, tra- a trade off, right? Like, yes, this field will not fill up. This field will not sell out. If you're doing a good business plan for your event, you shouldn't be making your event budget on individual fields yeah, anyway. Looking. You should be looking, well, here is all the revenue as a sum total. And I am investing in an underserved segment of the market because ultimately, if I invest in this underserved segment of the market, I can grow it. And if there's, if I've already maxed out on the number of 55-year-olds right? They're, they're, you're not going to get more 55-year-olds, but you could potentially grow up the women's field because they're underserved. From a business model, I think it's worth investing in a couple of years of a losing field in order to ultimately grow a segment that is underserved. Right. But that's me and I'm biased, which I admit, <laughs> you're also, right? You're also in charge of the velodrome. So, hey, <laughs> um, it's people like you who talk to people who say, I don't know if I want to sponsor that. I don't know if I want to have that field. So I, I think 
either probably by design, you've perfectly positioned yourself to really wave the banner and try to create the spaces. Did you, some of Lehigh Valley local resident and the velodrome, uh, as we've always called it, right? It's gone under different names, but the Valley Preferred Cycling Center is like this emerald gem, like just, I mean, there are so few places like it in the world, just without any hyperbolic exaggeration. And I know that you had wanted to try and spread the word. Of, I'm going to say again, because like in the 80s, everybody knew about it, right? And now just there's so many more people here now that maybe don't know about it. So what are your what are your goals for what you want to see happening at the facility and, and like how, how you want it to grow and integrate with the rest of the community? That's a great question. When I came here, and I'm not from the Lehigh Valley, so I came here. I wasn't, I wasn't judging. Just no, to, no, just to no, no. But, but, <laughs> but to your point, I, I was very familiar with with T Town and the velodrome um, because yeah, it's it a is mecca. I mean, if is, you want to understand right. the bicyclists, they come here from far away. Yes, correct. So I, as a person who's had a career in bike racing since 2002. I was well versed in in knowing what the what the velodrome was, and it was sort of a, a an honor to be tasked with this, you know, with this role. And if there's one thing that I want the velodrome to be, is it's fun, um, because that matters. But I also want it to be a place where little kids, peewee peddlers, squirts and weeble wobbles, all the way up to masters racers. And everybody in between, elite or not, can come and have fun. Um, to me, it's a place where we can cultivate this lifelong enjoyment of the bike. Mm. And that means integrating with the rest of the cycling community. So we want to partner with Pickle, the local high school mountain bike league. Um, we have those discussions going on. We have discussions going on with members of the gravel community, members of the mountain biking community. We have a great relationship with the, uh, with the promoter of the road events across the street and the Rodale fitness park. To me, if there was one thing that I would like to see the velodrome become is live up to its name as the Valley Preferred Cycling Center, where it becomes this sort of hub for something amazing in the mm -hmm. Lehigh Valley, where it, instead of being everybody in their silos of, I'm a mountain biker, I'm a gravel racer, I'm a road racer, start your gravel ride from the velodrome. You know, we have a great parking lot, we have showers, we have bathrooms, we have all the things you need to be a great ride start. And so many people already do that. But the goal then is to have, you know, the the parents who are mountain bikers have their kid learn bike skills in the little air products programs as a squirt or a peewee and then yeah. develop that next generation of racer. So the goal really is to be fully integrated as this just hub for cycling in the Lehigh Valley. And then it gets even deeper than that, right? It goes even further. Um, we partner with the Rodale Institute you know, we share a founder and the Rodale Institute is heavily, obviously focused on organic farming. And if we want the Lehigh Valley to stay this gem for bike riding that it is, we need to keep strengthening our relationship. Like the cycling yes, community need the needs secondary to, road network. <laughs> yes. We need to not have a thousand more warehouses go up in giant truck traffic. So we need to have the these, these partnerships within the community where all of a sudden we can create an appreciation for, hey, these beautiful roads that surround the velodrome yes. that we ride on, that people come from all over the world to train on when they're here for the summer racing at the track. 
if we if we support our local farmers, we support our local organic farmers as cyclists, as consumers, then we preserve our roads, right? So we want the velodrome to be a part of all of that type of mm. bigger thinking. And then you get even bigger, you blow it out a step further and you say, okay, well, we're partnering with Discover Lehigh Valley, which is the tourism organization for the Lehigh Valley, who tries to bring people here. We want to bring people in for cycling events. Discover Lehigh Valley wants to bring people in for cycling events. They also view cycle tourism as an incredibly big asset for this for the this region as a tourism draw. So then, okay, cycling can become an economic driver. This is like the potential like cycling utopia, right? This is my big yes. picture dream of like what I would love to see this become is a place where people travel to ride bikes. And we already get that with the elite athletes who come here for the summer, but why not try to blow it out for everyone? For everyone. And, and you do all sorts of good things. You create an economic driver for the region. You have great roads to selfishly ride on yourself. You have a really strong cycling community. To me, this is this is the conversation we should be having, and we're in a great position as the sort of hub to do it. So that's ultimately the very, very, very long answer to your question. No, I don't think it's overly <laughs> very, very long. I think that's that's really good. And there are things I'm like, I, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, to me, the secondary roads have always... I mean, I, I never would have considered myself a cyclist, but I've done a whole bunch of the MS-150s when they used to... I don't know if they still do that. When they used to ride from the velodrome, they'd ride like Lancaster, ride back or ride out there and... One year they did a covered bridge tour. That was a mistake. Oh, <laughs> so funny. those of us who were like local and like I've, I'm riding a bicycle over a covered bridge, you got to know how to do that. <laughs> you need to follow a board. You have to look ahead because sometimes there are boards that are missing. And they went, they rode 75 miles out to Lancaster. And then the second day was a 75 mile covered bridge tour. <laughs> and like in the first hour, they lost like 12 people and they were like getting plywood and like screwing it down oh, on the boy. bridge decks. <laughs> And cover the cracks. Like, whoops. Moral of the story is yeah. choose your bridges wisely. Choose your bridges wisely. Or I, I guess, I don't know. I, I think people learn a very important lesson the first time you hit a crack in you know, a covered bridge. I did it once and then I never did it again. But anyway, I'm off on a tangent. I never realized, I had no clue how magical it was. I would, uh, so one, one of my long dear term friends, his mom had a horse farm. So every single day in the summer, I would get up as soon as it was light, jump on my bike, ride 45 minutes through the game lands, through the secondary roads in the cool morning air, and then get to this guy's house. And then if the two of us could do all the chores of the day in half a day, and then we would either ride away from his house or throw our bikes in the back of his mom's GMC Jimmy and go to like Redding and race the crit at the pagoda or whatever. And we would just ride everywhere. And it never occurred to me that that was special. It was just, yeah, this, this is what I see from my house. Yeah. And then I've been to other places in the world and I'm like, oh, you don't have hills. No, like, it's, you, it's, <laughs> it's actually really unique magical. here. And I think people don't fully appreciate it. I went on vacation in April to California and I was in Redlands, essentially, which is a, a very nice part of the world. But And I went with a friend of mine and we did a little quote unquote training camp. We were trying to get some fitness back and... I didn't love the riding, right? Because it was a lot of big shoulders, right? So you're on a shoulder, which is great, but, but there's also like giant trucks flying by you and, and you're riding on, on the highway. The, yeah, everything on the shoulder, it like oh, people, are the, shoulders are not meant to be ridden on. That's where all that crap is, like all the junk's yeah. on the shoulder. So Sorry. I think, you know, you just like, 
and and everybody's oh the riding in California is so great and I'm like well is it really and and I lived in Colorado and same thing like the mountain biking in Colorado Springs is great the road riding in Colorado Springs is pretty limited so I've lived a lot of places where if you're a road cyclist it's not that great the the best you know road cycling I've had my entire life is here and if I have to fight with some horse and buggy traffic on a Sunday, okay, so be it. That's, oh, that's not the nothing. worst thing on earth, that's right? Nothing. Yes, you may have to dodge some poop, but really, <laughs> isn't that better than? I, I seriously like yeah. that's it, the the riding here is exceptional. Uh, I would include New, like New Jersey in that as well, right? They're right over the right over the river, and the riding in New Jersey is exceptional. Mm. And there are just beautiful beautiful farm roads here that that I don't think people fully understand how magical the road riding is around here. And then you start to add in things like the gravel roads and, yeah, and I all never of that got stuff. Into that, but there's, there's I mean, just, just here there's, it's stunning. And so you have the opportunity to do some really incredible bike riding in this region that I think, you know, Colorado and California get all the credit, but it's pretty special here, hmm. which is awesome. Do you like the, I'm never at a loss for things to ask. I'm always at a loss for which thread should I actually pull on. Was there anything that you were thinking on your way over here that you're like, I hope we get to talk about, because sometimes people have this No, thing I was actually more to curious up. to see what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, um, no, it's just an excuse for me to ramble on about bicycles. Because I'm, I'm such a nerd. Like I said, I can talk about this stuff forever because it's just, I'm a nerd. <laughs> so, I, so I'm wondering about, you know, we've, You've kind of mentioned it, and I've said this before. There's a lot of people who live in the Lehigh Valley, and the, and the, everything is growing, and and that that's fine. I'm not I'm not like get off my lawn, get out of it. like I know. Welcome, right. you know, please welcome to Pennsylvania. Although I joke, it's Pennsylvania is actually Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and the rest of it's Kentucky. So I often call it Pennsylvania. Yeah, I lived in Kentucky for four years, so <laughs> so you don't know. I, you know, and I don't. I've never been to Kentucky. I have no clue. I was going to say if there are. I don't know. We have to be approaching a quarter million people in the in the Lehigh Valley area now. Why? And I'm going to bet most of them, and I don't mean like 51. percent I mean oh, like way more. Like most 99 of them percent have no clue about that bicycle thing's a thing. And if you just get on, you know, 22 or MacArthur Road or 222, or you would never notice that there are 9,000 awesome roads, and you'd probably never see the cyclists because the cyclists are not on the big roads. Right. And I'm just wondering, how do you do the outreach? Like, how do we spread the passion for bicycling? I think that that's. Um uh, you know, to go back to a, our partnership with Discover Lehigh Valley, when we have racing on Friday nights, it's a ticketed event, so people have to come to the box office. And we typically ask, oh, you've never been here before. How did you find out about us? And it's been through this partnership with Discover Lehigh Valley mm. and using them as an asset to go outside our traditional audience. And cycling, broadly speaking, has a terribly bad habit of speaking to itself. So we always talk to ourselves, but we haven't figured out. And I and I say this as a person who worked at USA Cycling, and we yep. always talk to our own audience, right? We never went outside the the core. And I think that partnerships with organizations like Discover Lehigh Valley or working with other organizations is the way, right? Working with the Rodale Institute is the way. Working with the hospital, right? Working with LVHN mm. and saying 
hey, LVHN, here's a great ticket offer for your employees. Hey, LVHN, here's a Women's Wednesday program. So if you have, if you have people in your healthcare provider network who are looking for healthy activities, direct them to us. You know, let's activate our sponsors. We have brilliant sponsors. I mean, Air Products has been a, a supporter of the, the community programs Since here. Since like 70, I mean, as long yes, as I can remember, 78, 79. Right, for almost 40 years, right, and the, the place has been open for 46. And so having partners like Air Products who support the community program. Air Products doesn't support us for the elite level bike racing. No, Air they Products, show up, it's regular employees and their regular family and they show up in cool t-shirts and they have a crap ton of fun. Well, and they, they care about the community wellness piece, right? That's why they support us because we're reaching into the community. So we have to use those partnerships that we have with the organizations that support us to reach new people. You have to talk outside your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, and this summer, talking outside of our ecosystem has really really been driven by Discover Lehigh Valley, but it's also a very weird year, right? Where, where you're, you're, we're still in, we're yeah. still in the COVID times and, you know, a lot of corporations aren't doing corporate events. They're not doing in-person gatherings. So how do you reach people? And, and I think back when the velodrome was started, there wasn't a lot of other stuff to do, right? So everybody knew about the velodrome because it was what you did on a Friday night. Yeah, well, there now was no internet, right? Right, there was no internet, <laughs> there was no cell phones, there were no iron pigs, there were no Reading, whatever they are. Right. Like there wasn't competition in the same way there is now. I'm, now we're competing with Netflix and we're competing with cell phones and iPads and well, Iron Pigs. Concerts and in Center concert, City, right. Allentown. Right. Yeah, so the, so, the, so the you don't quite have the same level of focus. You have a local newspaper which um, is, is essentially you know, sold to a big corporation now, so it's less local than it used to be. So all of those things add up to making it much harder, but then you have all of these new people coming in uh, to the region who, who haven't been here since 1975. So when I, when I moved here, I, I just, by dumb luck, found a great doctor at LVHN who was like, oh, you work at the velodrome. She's like, I've known that about that place since I was a little kid. But she's local, right? Yeah. She's from here. If you get new people coming in, they don't even know it exists. And so how do we use these networks to reach new people? Um, mm. That's the big challenge because it is a weird little niche sport. And Yeah, it is and it isn't. So I, I'm just I'm just sitting here thinking like, damn it, I have to go to the velodrome. Yeah, see, if, if told you. you. If you've never been, uh, yeah, well, I've, I've done that like every year I go, I went the last time I've been to the Bellagio. The I don't want to talk down about other sports, but I, I have been to hockey games. I have been to, you know, professional baseball games, Little League baseball games, and there's just nothing like going to, and I'm going to say the Velodrome with a capital T. There's, there's only one, right? So when you go... It it's it's a show. Like the whole thing is a show. The I mean I'm talking to the choir, but the the you know, the the lights are on and you're looking at there's grass and there's people warming up and there's athletes sitting around and you can see people who are nervous and people who've done this a million times and famous people and people from other countries and but there's nothing else going on. Like the 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 bicycling is the reason that everything that is here is here. And I, I go to baseball games, and it's like, I really don't want T-shirts and, and juggling. I well, know. the other thing I think that sets the velodrome apart is what we talked about when we were first starting the conversation, which is everybody's ridden a bike, or most people have ridden a bike. Right. Right. So 
um, can relate. You, it's, it, is, it is relatable, right? You look at it and you say, oh, that can't be that hard, right? <laughs> I mean, because, <laughs> it it's is. just pedaling a bike. But it's relatable, right? But then yeah. you do, as a person who's ridden a bike, sort of have this appreciation going, oh, shit, that guy's going 50 miles an hour. Yeah, they go by at the top of the it's, wall. It's, Whoa! And, and, and I think that that's sort of the magic of bike racing, more broadly speaking. Yeah. My very first job in professional bike racing i worked for the bike race that was used to be in philadelphia the the it was the first union it was core states it was wachovia cycling series it had a whole bunch of names they ride up the manionk hill yes that correct the, the manionk wall <laughs> and my my very first so i was hired to work there and then the first event of the year rolls along and and my job is to quote unquote staff the announcers so i was at the finish line with the professional announcers and my job was to feed them information throughout mm. the day and and I had never worked on that side of the fence in bike racing before. And I, you know, a ton of event experience, but no, never worked at a bike race at that level. And, and I remember standing up on the stage and back then, again, it was all paper, right? We weren't digital then, there were no iPads, but it was I had all this paper on the desk about, you know, rider bios and sponsor announcements and all, all these details yeah, that the announcers might need throughout the day. And then the the music started, and so it's loud music, and then there's the national anthem, and then there's the color, right? All the jerseys are different colors, and then there's the the Philadelphia police on the front in, the, in their quote-unquote flying V, right? So they, yeah. ra- they rode in this V-shaped formation, and then there's all the cars in the caravan, and so you're hearing vroom, vroom, and you're hearing the cars, vroom, and you're, you're hearing the music, and you're seeing the color, and then the the race starts, and 200 dudes on bikes go by the stage and it's it moves the air yes, right so you you blast of air you hear the click 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 of all the cleats clicking into the pedals you hear the the gears you hear all this sound and what it was was this completely visceral experience for me of the music the vroom, vroom, the cars the the click click the gears shifting all of it and the and the sensation of the wind over my face and all the paper on the desk lifted up because of the speed of the of the riders going by and I was like oh shit I'm hooked right like this is the only thing I want to do with my life because it is such a visceral experience like it's it's tangible Mm. if you're at a baseball game sitting up in the last row of the bleachers drinking a beer you're having a lovely time right you are you are enjoying the sunshine you are enjoying a tasty beer you are out with friends it is a nice time if you go to the the velodrome or the bike race, they pass by your face. If you're in turn four, if, yeah, if you're in the they wrong pass place. by your face within inches and you feel the wind go by and you feel the sport. Yeah. And I think that that's the difference. And so whenever I've sold sponsorship for bike racing, it's the, the, the ticket is to get people out to see it and feel it because it is. It's sound, it's color, it's movement. It's all tied together in a way that I don't think other sports are. And so that's then the magic in it, right? It's, it's, it's something that you've done. You've ridden a bike. I've never played Major League Baseball, I've, I've, but I've ridden a bike, and I can appreciate the effort that mm. goes into it. But then you're just overwhelmed all your senses, right? Because it's all your senses yes. are engaged with that. And then you also, just like baseball, get to have good beer and good food. And so then you're winning, right? Because there's all of the things. All the things. There's also a tangible 
the scale of the, turn this into a velodrome commercial. The scale of the velodrome is such that you can basically see and hear everything happening anywhere. I mean, like Correct. if somebody, if like when the riders go by and things get a little heated and they're having, oh, yeah. they're swapping cookie recipes. If they're doing that on like two turns away, you can still tell what's going on. Like you, you can actually be engaged in the whole pageantry everywhere in the velodrome. And and, the, and that's the funny part. The, the audience absolutely is engaged. Oh, yes. So if you're there on a Friday night, people are into it. And that's amazing. And I think the audience at the track doesn't care if it's the two best New Zealanders in the world racing against the best American in the world or if it's juniors. They don't care as long as the racing is good because it's such a sophisticated audience at the track, right? The people that go are very much aficionados of the sport. They appreciate good racing, whether it's the little kids yep. or the best pros. It doesn't matter as long as the racing is good. And they always have that reaction to, you know, it was close contact. Ooh, there was, a, you know, like you, you feel that when you're, when you're there. It's, yeah. It is very connected. The, the audience has an actual, again, it's a very visceral experience. They are part of the action. And, and I know that from what I understand, it works the other way too. The athletes can hear, yes, you know, the sure. crowd and, and because they're all like around you, it's like a gladiatorial arena. Um, but I've like seen the little peewee kids race on the oh, apron. Amazing, like, and, yeah. I, and I'm just like, that's the best thing I've ever seen. That's even, that's as good as Madison's, you know, like yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Oh, we had that see. last weekend actually. It was really, it was really beautiful. We had all the kids come out and race and it was awesome. So yeah, the little kids, man, they, they, they're just as hardcore as the grown ups. Yes, they pin their heart on their sleeve and go at it. Um, yeah. What, um, so back of my brain is going, I think a lot of people who listen to Movers Mindset they're not well. Suddenly, my brain flashed to somebody named Nick, who I happened to know was doing a giant like cross state bicycling thing. Most of the people that I think of when I think of parkour and ADD are not super into bicycles. And there's clearly, uh, clearly, you have a passion for bikes, and I guess I, I have to call myself out too. And I'm wondering, is there something that we can take out of? Like, how did that passion get created? And I think we've touched on it. A lot of it is. It's just a human being and a fairly simple machine. I mean, they're pretty high tech, but it's basically a simple machine. And that's all there is. And, and it's that person's mind and their body against the other minds. And I think that's part of the allure. But I'm just wondering if there are maybe some lessons we can draw from what is the magic of bicycling that we can say, all right, if you're teaching, you know, an, a high school PE class or, and that was part of what I was fishing for in the very beginning when I said, what was it about your entrance to bicycling that was so magical so that people could try and people who are listening well i teach a parkour class in a park for people over 65 you know they can be thinking i heard her say in the beginning about that beautiful on-ramp and so i'm just wondering if there are any some bigger thoughts you have about on-ramping people well i think i mean i think the thing and this is very personal right i don't know that this would actually translate to somebody in a park doing this. But for me, thinking about my trajectory as an athlete throughout life, right? Because I do think of myself as an athlete. And I thought of myself as an athlete when I was dancing ballet too. You clearly are an athlete. I'm just going (laughs) to... It's it's the process, right? It's the process, no matter what your pursuit is. So if you are pursuing excellence in the ballet, it is repetition, right? It is absolutely 
repetition. The, the, the process of the ballet is every day. There's a bar, there's plies, there's grand plies, there's jeté. It, it's, it's a repetition and it's a process of, of perfection, right? And, and maybe ballet is skewed a little bit more towards perfection than other sports, but it is definitely a, a repetition and a process and a refinement that you do daily, mm-hmm. right? And, and for me, bike racing and bike riding is the same thing. It is, you, you only get good at it if you have repetition and think about what, what, what cycling is. It's this repetitive cadence of your legs. It is, it's repetition, it's time, it's consistency, it's practice, right? It is, it is something that if you wanted to race a crit and you, and I think this is partially where the sport almost goes sideways is that, to, to race a crit, for example, you can't just rock up and not have been riding your bike because you'll get dropped Creamed. from the group, right? <laughs> and so the way you succeed in the sport and not the pursuit, not the activity, but really truly in the sporting side of it is repetition and practice. And um, maybe a ballet, you're doing variations and you're rehearsing a role but in bike racing, you are doing intervals and you are, you are practicing the thing that you're going to apply in a race scenario. So for me, as a person, going back to OCD, as a person who, who likes structure, who, who thrives on repetitiveness, who, re, who thrives on focus, mm. I think that they're, as weird as that is to say that they're very similar, I think any athletic pursuit is the same, right? If you're practicing yoga, your your practice, your daily movement of repetition of the postures and the poses helps refine you as a yogi. If you're a mountain climber, if you're a rock climber, which I did a fair bit of gym climbing when I lived in Cal- Colorado, it's the same thing. It's rehearsed movement, right? You you refine how you move from hold to hold. You practice how your toe goes onto the right. holds on the wall. So it's always about that refining of movement, of of finding that sort of pursuit of perfection, right? How do I how do I solve this bouldering problem in fewer moves? How do I how do I find the right way to start and finish this problem on the, on the, on the wall? It's always in refining the movement. And I think that cycling is no different from that. And so I think any sport or activity that you want to be good at, it's the same. It's that repetitive focus on doing things better every time you do it. So that's what you take away from bike racing is the same thing. Okay. Well, you want to be a, a great runner. Well, you have to run a lot of miles, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. You have to run a lot of miles. Yeah. You have to run different speeds. You have to run hill repeats. You have find to run. Find your gang. Find the people to run with. Right. And, yeah. and, you, and you have to be willing to just have that focus. And I think that that's, to me, bike racing or bike riding became the thing that I was able to focus on because it sort of brought me joy, right? Like, you can be 100% committed and 100% focused on doing the thing, even when it's shitty weather outside and you don't really want to ride your bike, but you sort of have this compulsion to follow this desire mm. to always be refining and always be focusing. It's no different than doing a billion plies to me, mm. right? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that that's where people who want to be good at the things that they're good at, 
it's always in that magic of doing it over and over again and refining and refining and refining. How do you stay uh, clearly passionate? How do you stay passionate about your personal bicycling practice? Because <laughs> I have OCD. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't do anything deliberately. It just happens. Hmm. It's just in my nature. I think my, my coach would tell you it's because I'm super, super stubborn. You can't do this. That's the way to get you to do it? Right? No, it's, it's, it's worse than that. It's just a, it's, it is like a compulsion for me. Hmm. Like I, I, but I love structure. And so if I, like I love structure. And so for me to go out and train and all right, here's every, we use a, yeah. uh, we use a platform called training peaks, right? He uploads all the workouts into training peaks. And as soon as they're uploaded, I know what the, my week looks like that gives my week structure, which is very comforting to mm. me, right? I feel good when I know what structure is and I, I have order imposed on my week by having the anchor of the training. And so for me, it's very comfort that that structure is very comforting. If I miss a workout, it disrupts my structure. So for me, it's, it's just, it's a very comfortable it's place to stay focused. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, but not everybody's that way. Some people crave variety. Some people crave other, and I just don't, it's not how I'm wired. Hmm. I am, I'm wired for repetitive stuff like that. <laughs> I just, you know. Do you ride, are you riding mostly on the roads or you're riding particular, do you know what, like, how do you decide where to go? Like uh, out the I, front door and. Well, not out the front door because where I live, it's not really great riding. So I, I don't know. I, I go where I like it hmm. and where I feel like I can do the things that my coach has told me I'm going to do today. Hmm. Are you going to do this? Okay, well, then this I is the hell. route that's best. <laughs> I need a long but, flat. But I don't, like, you know, yesterday Yesterday I was a, an easy hour ride. That was all I was told on my, my trading peaks, one, one hour easy. I, I took my mountain bike out and just played bikes because you do get to like if, the, if it's easy hour in the in the schedule then an easy hour means i get to play bikes and it's not training per se so i just went out on my mountain bike and jumped over things and and had fun splashing through some puddles and that was that but today i went out on the road and did very focused efforts and so it's just different but it's all part of just follow what i'm told to do mm-hmm. that's also a very ballet mindset follow the structure. <laughs> I, I struggle. I guess I'm an athlete by definition, but I don't have a particular, I'm not in a, I was going to say I'm not in a sport that has competitions, but that's not even true anymore. Generally the sport that I do doesn't have particular competitions. So I walk around my house and there's like a piece of steel pipe bolted to the roof of my patio and like, Oh, I should hang from that. You know, like I, I do lots of little, some people in our space, would call it movement snacks. Like I do a lot of that. And I also do like outsized things like, oh, I'm going to take my van. I'm going to go rock climbing for four days. And, and it's like at the end of that, you're like licking wounds. But for me, the struggle is always to find a way to do the things in between because I don't have, because it's not a sport, I'm not aiming for a race on the 30th of whatever. And I'm not trying to better my, you know, mile split time. Or, so it, it gets tricky to figure out how to do something that's more than just don't be sedentary but isn't driven by a really coherent plan and agenda. And I'm... You got to work on your OCD, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know know that I need to be OCD. (laughs) I guess that's a a valid answer. What I was going to say, have you seen, like you, you have obviously exposure to a lot of athletes at the velodrome and 
do you see people who are, have like a spread of like, I don't know how that kid does it. They never seem to have anything planned, but they're really good. And this person is OCD. Like, oh, sure. It, yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, how do the people who are not OCD? Because they're more gifted than I am. <laughs> oh, that's cheating. <laughs> we'll just go with more gifted. Yeah, no, I, I think everybody has their process too, right? I mean, everybody's... You can pull like, that even closer. Everybody's process is different, right? So there are people who who are really good at going in three days a week and they get everything out of it that they need in three days a week. Mm. And that's awesome, right? Because then that frees them up to do other stuff. And I am not one of those people that is good if I only do something three days a week. I, I mean, cause I'm not terribly talented at it. I just work real hard. Um, but there are, yeah, there are lots of people who, for, for whom, a, a different approach or a different tactic works better. And it, it depends on your goals and it depends on your natural abilities, which I have very little of in this particular space, but I really like it. So I chase it anyway. And, and I, and I think that that's, that's the answer, right? It's, it's you find the way that works for you. And, and I admire the people who are able to jump on the bike after taking two days off and still like their legs still work. My legs turn to cement if I take a day off the mm. bike. So I understand that for me, this this way works better, but there are lots of people for whom it works very, very differently. And and I certainly wouldn't hold myself up as the example to follow. I just think you have to find what works for your body and find refine that for yourself. But mm. for me, it it for me again, and I think that's because from f- age four on, I was doing something that was incredibly repetitive and incredibly consistent. So it's different. You know, everybody's different. If you grew up doing like football on Thursday and baseball on Wednesday and soccer on Monday, you're probably able to do things in a way that I'm not, Mm. right? Because your body is used to diversity and mine is not. (laughs) (laughs) We make circles. Yeah. This is going to sound like a complete left turn because it is. What about podcasting made you... So so the talk of the T-Town podcast, I went... I'm not really, oh, I'm not a track racer, never have been. And I'm like, you know, it's still interesting because it's bicycling. So I I like the show, but what made you decide to go like into audio medium? You know, the the track is a pretty special community and COVID sort of forced us apart. And to me, it became a way to keep the community in 2020, we weren't able to bring everybody from all around the world to the track for the summer. And so it started out as a way to keep connected with our community. And that really mattered. I think, I I think for a lot of reasons, what, from a business perspective, it mattered, right? It it mattered in in terms of staying relevant when you couldn't be together, but it also just mattered sort of in the spirit of the place to keep everybody connected, to keep, I don't know, giving people hope maybe uh, that, that bike racing was going to come back, that the track was going to come back, that we're, you know, we're, we're still here making plans to do the thing that they love because people do these things because they love it. Right. And so if we could find a way to bring people together during a time when we couldn't be, that's, that was the big driver was really to just to find a digital way to, to keep the community together. And it's really evolved over the course of the year. And to me, it's like the most fun thing I do now because I get to talk to just an incredibly wide 
range of people. I mean, one of the women we had on early days in the podcast just won a gold medal in, in, in Tokyo. How cool is that? Mm. Another woman that we had on is from here and she had announced that this was going to be her last season racing at the track and talked about how all in she was going on this season and with the goal of winning a national championship and then with her goal of chasing, chasing rider of the year at, at T-Town. And and she's a person that had come up through the program since she was a little kid. Mm. And so she talked about what it meant to her. I didn't care about the sporting side of that conversation. I talked about how chasing her passion for this thing has been since she was a little kid and how special that was for her. And it was just nice to get to know her that way and to hear what motivated her and why she was working so hard. And I don't think you have to be a track racer to appreciate somebody's just commitment to chasing a dream. So that was, it's been, it's been super cool to just hear people talk about what drives them. I, I love that. And, and I find it super inspiring myself. And, and then we've had the, the nerdy ones where we talk about gear ratios and we talk about all sorts of stuff. And I slow those down to try and keep up. You know? Yeah. But those are really good conversations too, because we're all kind of nerds together. Right? right. And so, yeah, it's become a, it's become a super good mix tomorrow. We're recording one, with a guy who's a, a pilot for a para tandem and how timely is that? We have the para games coming up and he's going to talk about his experience doing that. And it's, so it's relevant to our sport right now, but it's also just a super interesting story. Yeah. So it's cool. You get to talk to people who also love the thing that you love, hmm. which is pretty rad. I get paid to do that. <laughs> yes. yes, please. Yeah. Was there anything? So whose idea was it? Your idea? Yeah. Okay. So was there anything about it that you were like, uh, this is going to be a problem that just turned out to not be a thing at all? Um, so shout out to my, to my web person, um, Janet Ackeson, who's like, so who would have thought we would have this just brilliant collaboration with our web designer, right? The woman who, who designed our website, oh, she and I did a big website re revamp my first year working here. And it became this, this sort of brilliant collaborative process of working with her on the website. And then, I had the idea for the podcast sort of the same time she did. And she is just this amazing person who, who, Hey, I think we should think about doing this. I'm like, I've never had a collaborative process like that with a, with our a person who maintains our website before. And it's super collaborative with her. And she comes up with all these great ideas and, Oh, let's design an app. Okay, let's do it. And so the, the podcast has been this just adventure in, in a, in a process with our, our, our web person, Janet, for whom I'm exceedingly thankful because she edits it and she provides feedback. And then she's like, Oh, I really liked this part. And so it's such a good process with her that it's, it's massively fun. But if there was one thing I would have been worried about had I not had a Janet involved would have been the technical aspects of it, but I have a Janet. So I, I just didn't worry about it. You know, I just, I was like, we have Janet, she's going to make it all good. And yeah. So, you know, I have, I have a Janet and she, she does great stuff for us. And so yeah, the, there was no, I mean, what do we have to lose? We're just having, we're just talking about bikes with people. And so yeah. there, to me, there was no downside. Um, and she's just soothed, smoothed out all the technical stuff and got it off the ground. Yeah. Got it off the ground. Do you find that, I think you managed to keep, I'm going to say, keep it pretty much on track. And I'm just wondering, do you have moments where you have to choose between, you know, there's something here that I'm super personally curious about versus something that I think is on really, really on topic. And like, how do you have, does that come up for you and how no, do you navigate that? It doesn't. 
I honestly, because I love the stream of consciousness, right? Like I, I, I've said it on the on the pod before, where I love it's like a James Joyce novel, right? We're just like <laughs> I'm a piece of paper floating down the Liffey, right? I don't care where it goes. It's that that's sort of I, I don't care. Like I just let it go, and that's been the most fun. Is that I haven't had to face that yet. Maybe I will, but right now it's just like just go, and mm. it's stream of consciousness, and it's it's super fun that way. Like I don't script it. You know, the first few ones we did, we scripted it because they were people I didn't actually know very well, but now the guests that we've had, the more you do, the access gets easier. Yeah. And so that's been super easy and just like sit down. I do my research on their backgrounds, of course, first, but then we just sit down and we just let it go. And that's super fun. I just let it, letting it roll and I don't Mm. care where it goes. I, I, I have not had an end point that I wanted to reach with a single guest when I sat down with them. I just wanted to see where they took it, hmm. which was cool. <laughs> I, I have no agenda for it other than just it's a cool thing to do. Yeah, to keep in touch with the cyclists. Yeah, so that's a disappointing answer, I'm sure. <laughs> no, that's not disappointing. That's the, it, I think it's better when I think, I, like, I wonder if, uh, oh, you went that way. I mean, like, that's... To me, that's the the power of the medium. Like people listening, it, it engages a very old part of your brain. So, I mean, unless you're like listening in a car, then it gets hard. But anyway, listening is a very intimate medium. Um, and so it's fun to hear that, like as it gets created in real time. Like it's one thing, dear listener, to listen to a podcast after it's been you know, all put together. And then it's another to like actually sit in front of the mic and have the conversation with the, with the person on the opposite side. Uh, and that's what I like is the conversation part. Yeah, me too. That's why I like seeing where I just let people take it where they want to go. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. You talk about whatever you want to talk mm-hmm. about and I'll follow along. Anything else you want to talk about? Any other place you want to go? No. <laughs> <laughs> Some guests I have discovered tend to like, you don't have to suggest very far like i can just say what about and like a halfway through a sentence and then off they go which is fine um, no and, i'm and i'm i'm enjoying the, the being on the other side of it I, today. I think i said something about that like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very nice to not have to worry about levels or not take notes or or even better know that when you press stop you don't have to do anything else yeah no There's nothing else and janet doesn't have to work on this one <laughs> sorry it's all on you this time <laughs> so it's it's always fun I think to be on to be on both sides, and I, I think maybe the same thing applies to like your experience in bicycling. Like when you got to be on the other side, uh, you know, on the I guess I'd call that front of house versus being on the track. Like when you get to be the person creating the experience for the people doing the thing, that's a whole nother. Like whoa, there's a whole. I've, I've had a little bit of experience doing some event stuff in sporting, and and it was just aside from the whole like wow, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes aside from that it was just neat to see like you know if i you know figuratively speaking if i put this over here versus over there it changes this experience for five thousand visitors and just to have the responsibility and the opportunity to experiment with those kinds of things so i can tell you're super crazy passionate about you know what you're doing at the velodrome and i think that's a great yeah that's great for all of us it's great for the velodrome oh good I will tell you a nerdy story about that thing that you just talked about being on the inside of the fence so when I was running my cyclocross series, I would go over to Belgium for the for the big races, you know, every year, world championships or whatever. And and it was 
I was always sort of struck by I was on the outside of the fence, right? Because those weren't my events. And right. I was very used to being on the inside of the fence at my events. And mm. and when I would go to Belgium, I would be on the outside. And it always felt kind of unsatisfying to be mm. on the outside of the fence over there at the big races in Belgium. And it sort of became this thing where I, I we, we were awarded the bid to do the world championships in Louisville, Kentucky, which had not happened ever before. Like the cyclocross worlds had never left Europe before. And so ours was the first time it was going to happen. And, and I sort of became obsessed with this notion of the fact that I was going to get to be on the, finally going to get to be on the inside of the mm. fence after all of the year, these years of going over to Belgium and being sort of adjacent to the action, which to me, uh, this is, this is the nerdy part, right? Like, most people would be stoked to be watching the bike racing. And because I'm a nerd who liked what I do for a living, <laughs> I wanted to be on the inside and being the one, you know, making the thing happen because that's the joy in my job is I like making the thing happen. I, I like to do all the work and then see it come to life, which is why I like to do events, right? Because right. the event actually turning on and starting or the race actually turning on and starting is very satisfying to me. And so when I finally got to have the the World Championships in Louisville, it was a like it was a cursed event, right? Everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and including the Corps of Engineers calling us on Thursday and saying, "Hey, by the way, the river's going to flood and your venue's going to be underwater on Sunday." And we were like, "Uh, thanks for the heads up." Um, so yeah, I mean, they're like, "Oh, sure, the the sewer department." It, in Louisville can build a temporary dam to hold the water back long enough for us to have the race. So it was a very dramatic and tra traumatic uh, event to produce. And normally the cyclocross world championships run over two days, right? There's two races on Saturday and there's two races on Sunday. And we had to smoosh them all onto Saturday because Sunday Armageddon Sunday, the river was going to take the venue underwater. And so I remember very distinctly walking down before the start of the elite men's race and the pits were down in the the infield and the the temporary dam i wasn't joking about that there was in fact a temporary dam built by the sewer department of of louisville to hold the ohio river back long enough for us to pull off this bike race and i remember walking down into the field and seeing that the water was starting to breach the dam and I, I remember, like, I, I had bought, <laughs> such a nerd, I'd bought Burberry boots, right? The fashion boot Burberry. Mm -hmm. So I had these very, very fancy black rubber rain boots for the day because it's the world championships and you want to look spiffy. And I remember watching the water lap over the, the toes of my boots and being on the race radio going, start the bike race, right? Because I, it, was, it was terrifying to me. The, water's, the water is coming. Yes. Uh, start the bike race. And I walked up to the top and... They had started calling cyclocross runs in a grid, right? So based on your ranking in the sport, you're on the front row, second row, third row. And front row start matters, right? Because you get the quote unquote hole shot and that usually sets you up. You don't have to pass through traffic, right? If you're at the front of the race, you have an advantage because you're not chasing through a hundred dudes to get to the front. And in cyclocross, the person who comes across the line first wins, which is not always the case in all bike races. But I remember walking up from down in the field, having seen the water starting to come through the dam and walking up to the grid where they're calling, you know, Sven Nies and all the Niels Albert and all the big stars are being called into the grid and lined up to start the race. And I looked up at the sky and I was like, oh God, is the meteor going to come? Right. It was like, are we going to get hit by Skylab? Like what's going to happen next? Cause it'd been such a disaster filled 
race and then Skylab didn't hit us, then the gun blew and the race started and I got to do that thing that I had wanted to do all those years going to Belgium, which was I got to walk down the inside of the fence at the world championship in my official jacket as event director and have that moment of I am inside the fence. This is my bike race and the world championships just happened. And it was the most satisfying and yet traumatic moment of my entire career, which was, yeah, it was astonishing to just Mm. have that moment of inside the fence. I was like, I got the thing. Like that was the thing I wanted more than anything was to be the race director inside the fence. What a nerdy admission that is. But I mean... Yeah. Isn't that amazingly nerdy? <laughs> I, I don't know that I would say it's nerdy, but I, I, I mean... It's very both, specific. <laughs> it's very specific. Thank you for sharing. And I don't mean that in a trite way, but it, it's a, um, it's not quite a parable, but it's close, but it's right on like, what is it that makes Joan so passionate about being the director and, and, and what do you bring? I mean, I think think I knew, but if you don't, if you have no clue who I'm talking to today, now you have some idea of what she means, what passion means to her when she brings that to the velodrome. And so I've never, I've never actually seen you at the velodrome. And if I have, I wouldn't have known who you were. Did you get a little taste of that on Friday night lights at the velodrome or is it, has it become familiar now? Uh, no, for sure. Never that it's, it's, not quite the same. Well, right. But, but, <laughs> but it is always enormously satisfying to see... The first. You work really hard over the winter, right? You come up with event identities, you come up with collateral, you come up with marketing plans, you come up with all of the stuff that makes it happen. And it's still enormously satisfying to see it happen, mm. you know, every week. If, I, if it wasn't, I wouldn't do it. So... Yeah, some weeks are more exciting than others, but generally speaking, after the first race starts, I always have the national anthem sings and the first race starts, and generally speaking, when the gun goes off, I have that moment of, there we go, did it again, it feels good. It feels good when the thing happens, to a to a lesser extent, but still, yeah, it still feels good to see the thing actually happen every time it happens. Hmm. Like national championships this summer was was very much that way. Like that was a slog. We we pulled it off with six weeks lead time, but it was very important mm. that I think that the track community have a, a national championships. Yeah. And when the original venue couldn't host it, it was very important that when they asked us to do it, it felt very important that we pull Say it off. Yes. But it was terrifying because mm. we had six weeks lead time, and I was like, "Oh crap, are we going to actually be able to pull this off with six weeks?" And we did. But yeah, it was enormously satisfying when that event started because we're like, okay, we got here. So yeah, it still happens. It's not as cool as doing the world championships as cross, so <laughs> definitely not as cool. <laughs> Don't tell my boss. <laughs> uh, we'll cut that part out. No, we won't. I'm I'm gonna like. Wow. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I, I want to ask like a boring question. Does the Velodrome have like a historian or is somebody doing like the history of everything? Like, is like, are we going to have a museum? I mean, like, not that you have to build it, but please tell me somebody is collecting all that. I think that there is a huge amount of stuff in the Rodale archives. 
a lot of which has been donated to, I think, Kutztown University, but I could be wrong. It could be Muhlenberg. The, the Rodale family has done, um, done a lot. Of, of keeping of all of that mm. archival stuff. So yes, it does exist. Okay, because I, I just suddenly yeah. went like, there's a lot of magic. And I mean, you know that, and I know that, but I'm just like... Oh, no, there's a I lot. I hope somebody's... <laughs> there, there's a lot of magic. And yes, the, the answer is yes, that the, the, that the Rodales have a lot of that information, a lot of that, the photos and history, yeah. Because I would guess now there must be staff photographers and, you know, all the events are archived. And now in the digital age, it's much easier to just like, oh, no, store that stuff all over here. But yeah, yeah there's so much history there. No, that, that, and it does all exist, so... Any plans to build? Build an actual museum or a... Oh, not at the moment. It's a nice thing to contemplate though, right? Like if you had time and budget, yeah. um, it would be a nice thing to do. Right now we're... Busy. Yeah. <laughs> I was recently at, in Corning, New York at the Museum of Glass. And I was expecting, you know, a lot of Corning, you know, but there was very little Corning the company. And instead what it was is one of the best museums I've ever been to. So... I, I just, I was, half of me was walking through it. See, because like already loaded in my head, it's like Joan, you know, on, what is it, Tuesday? Like Joan Tuesday. It's like rattling in the back of my head and I'm looking at this museum and I'm just like, oh, what if, what if this was like the Velodrome Museum and there'd be like, oh my God. Like, so I, part of me was just falling over my tongue because it's, I mean, glass everywhere. Oh my God, it was amazing. And then part of me was going like, why? Why doesn't the Velodrome have this? Like this, there is. I mean, Mecca. But anyway, um, sorry, I'm off on. If you, you ever go to, if you ever go to Belgium, go to the the Tour of Flanders Museum. Mm. That'll make you happy. <laughs> it's it's what you're talking about. <laughs> but I want one for my local bicycle. <laughs> but okay, I will. I will definitely check that out. The beauty of episode notes. Everything gets linked. Uh, all right. Well, as much as I, I hate to say it, I don't want to like suck up your entire day. We have racing tonight, so yeah. <laughs> oh, hmm. What am I doing? I don't have. What am I doing at freckle past hair? Um, all right. So I guess I will just say, and of course, the final question: three words to describe your practice. Intense, consistent, crazy. Cool. That's all you get. No, that's fine. I say before we press record, you can do three words or some people have things that they want to work out and I'm not fishing. I just really love to hear everybody's answers. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And I think we'll just say have a great day. Hey, you too. Thanks. (laughs) 